Rick Jensen. On 1150 AM, 101.7 FM, WDEL. Years ago, when conservative thought leader William F. Buckley mm, Jr. made some very, very powerful and compelling presentations on why marijuana should be legalized, I bought in. You know what? Makes sense. Taxic. Even before the research that has proven that cannabis is not addictive, it is not uh, leading people to harder drugs. You know, it's not, a, it's not a gateway drug. Research has shown this. And I would think that conservatives would be all in for this, right? It's less problematic than alcohol, even. But for decades, groups like Normal and, and now, of course, the Delaware Cannabis Policy Coalition... Delaware Cannabis Advocacy Network, which is Delaware Can, um, Marijuana Policy Project, all these folks have been working tirelessly just to get it legalized. Well, I think something like 17 states have already legalized it now for recreational use. And once again, here we go. I think the, this will be like the, well, last year was weird, but uh, it'll be like the third year that there is a strong piece of legislation in the Delaware State Legislature to legalize marijuana. This may be the year. I don't know. But on the phone right now, we have two people who are very much uh, involved in this uh, from the Delaware Cannabis Advocacy Network, President and Board Chair Zoe Patchell. Let's get to Zoe. Hey, Zoe. Hi, Rick. How's everything? Thanks for having us on. Sure. Now, is Adam Windet as well uh, on the phone? Yes. Okay. Uh, with, okay. Well, is uh, did I pronounce your your last name properly? How do you pronounce that? Windet. Good. I did. Randy was supposed to ask you. I don't think he did. Did you do that, Randy? Again, epic fail. Uh, and Adam is an attorney and also a director. And if you want to make a contribution, give him a call. <laughs> Fair enough. Right. <laughs> so tonight you uh, you're going to have this uh, this forum, virtual forum. I want to know, is uh, is everybody invited uh, on this forum from 7 o'clock to 8.30 tonight? Yes. So we're inviting the public. Uh, this is a public forum um, that's going to address uh, the many uh, different concerns that we hear from opponents. So it's a myth-busting public forum that we've invited the public. We've also invited legislators um, to ask questions and give comment. We want to have this open and honest dialogue with everyone, we've been having this honest dialogue for nearly a decade here in the state of Delaware. But with each bill that gets uh, introduced, like you said, this is the third version of the adult use legalization bill. It's actually the fifth year for cannabis legislation here in Delaware for legalization. Um, but it's the third session, um, General Assembly session, that has taken up legalization. Um, and I I think I mentioned before, but a little-known fact, but Delaware was the first state in the entire country to garner a simple majority on a cannabis legalization market bill. Um, but because of the state constitution that requires a supermajority for bills that involving taxes and licensing fees, we ended up failing by four votes. Um, but four yes, votes. we've invited everyone to participate in our um, myth versus facts legalization forums tonight from 7 p.m. till 8.30 p.m. We have some of the heaviest hitters in cannabis policy reform uh, joining us, including um, 
Paul Armantano, the deputy director of Normal, Dr. David Nathan, the director of Doctor for Cannabis Regulation, as well as Shaleen Title, um, a former inaugural commissioner for the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission and vice chair of Cannabis Regulation, Regulators of Color Coalition. And we also have Representative Ed Ozinski, the prime sponsor of HB 150, um, who's going to be our special guest legislative speaker this evening. This really is something that should be bipartisan. And, and people know this in this program. I'm very critical of uh, mostly Democrats uh, and, and when it comes to policy, but also Republicans, too. But we, we are long past the day when this should just be done. And for the Republicans who resist, allow me to, again, say the name William F. Buckley Jr. It's time. It, it really is. So what are some of the objections you're hearing from people in the state legislature, Zoe? Uh, we hear a little bit of everything, mostly, you know, um, messaging that revolves around, like, the antiquated reefer madness messaging that we've heard for decades that have kept cannabis illegal and uh, hundreds of thousands of cannabis consumers subjected to uh, criminal penalties for cannabis. Um, we hear things like gateway, um, DUI, um, workplace safety, um, and uh, increased illicit market activity, um, the threat that big marijuana, just like big tobacco, is going to take over, um, and all kinds of other crazy misinformation and uh, commonly refuted uh, information by research. Now, so now we, so we know a lot of this stuff is phony. Those of us have done some research. And, Adam, if you want to join in on this, that's fine. I'm just so used to talking with Zoe. I, I know that uh, she has this uh, deep knowledge level of the policy. I have some legal questions for you as well uh, in this conversation, Adam. But if you want to join in, uh, let's start off. Let's just go through real quick some of these things. It, but it occurs to me, before I do, what about those lawmakers, Republicans, Democrats, um, who are not quite on board with this? I mean, how do you get to them? Are they going to be in this Zoom meeting tonight? Um, we've invited all the legislators. Um, we've not had responses from very many. So, unfortunately, um, the opponents of legalization have not responded to our request to join us for this meeting tonight. Um, to have this open and honest public dialogue. But like you said, this matter actually is um, does have uh, bipartisan support. In fact, um, HB 150 passed out of the House Health and Human Development Committee 10 to 5 um, with bipartisan support. Representative Mike Smith um, actually voted in favor of uh, that passing out of committee. And it's something that, like you said, um, all legislators should support. Wait, 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 wait. You mean my good friend, Republican Mike Smith? Yes, Republican Mike Smith. Attention Republicans, Republican. Mike Smith, he's a pretty conservative guy, voted out of committee and said, yes, let's go ahead with this. I, just wanted yes, to... I mean, I think the, the writing is on the wall. We have over 40% of the U.S. population now lives in one of the legal states. Um, and 19 other states have pending legislation to legalize cannabis and convert the illicit market to a safe, legal, and regulated industry this year. You know, one of these legal states is New Jersey, and a good portion of our state is either in driving or viewing distance of New Jersey. And Delaware doesn't exist in a bubble, so logically, why would we continue to waste limited taxpayers' dollars to continue to enforce a policy that's never worked 
and now somehow expect it to work when so many other states are moving ahead with legalization. It doesn't make any logical sense, and it's fiscally irresponsible. I think Republicans, um, like uh, Representative Mike Smith, recognize that that fact. All right, so cannabis, some people still think cannabis is a gateway drug. There have been a lot of studies showing that that is not true. Which one of you wants to give a quick overview of that? That would be me, Rick. Okay, Zoe. Uh, I mean, the gateway theory has literally been one of the single greatest examples of successful misinformation campaigns. There's never been one actual study that's ever determined that the use of cannabis leads one to try uh, other drugs or be addicted to drugs. Um, basically, all of the most prestigious and respected health and medical agencies and organizations, including the Institute of Medicine, National Institute of Health, National Institute of Drug Abuse, and many others have all conclusively refuted that cannabis is absolutely not a gateway. The Institute of Medicine did a longitudinal study that reported to Congress, quote, most drug users begin with alcohol and nicotine before marijuana. Oh, yeah, and, and, and alcohol is a big one. Peer pressure is a big one. I've read these studies as well. And I'm going to kind of move you along to each of these uh, six, you know, for my listening audience and encourage everybody to tune in tonight at uh, 7 o'clock. We'll give you the address and, and how to get there in a little bit here. Um, we do hear, like, for example, AAA Mid-Atlantic saying, oh, well, you know, we, we don't have a test uh, to determine if somebody is driving impaired, so, so we can't legalize it because uh, law enforcement doesn't have a test. That, that's untrue, Rick. I, I've never seen an officer come into court in one of my cases and say that they don't have a way of testing people for DUI when it's not alcohol. It's quite the opposite. Officers have a battery of standard field sobriety tests that are designed for alcohol, but are equally applicable to other uh, substances. And what AAA is saying, and the point they keep driving at is that there's no roadside breath test like an alcohol PBT test. The counter to that is that there's a long list of substances that a person can't drive under the influence of, both illicit and legal. There's prescription drugs that if you're impaired by those drugs, if you consume those drugs, you get a DUI. And there's not a roadside test for any of those substances. Alcohol is the only substance that there's a, a roadside breath test for. You so know, the, the argument is, is just is just based on a fallacy. And then the other side of that is the tests are under development. Uh, you know, we didn't wait to end prohibition until there was a, a alcohol breath test, but it was developed afterwards. Now, that's what I've been saying for, for years now also about, you know, we didn't have a DUI. We didn't have ABV and a DUI test and things like that when they uh, reversed prohibition. You know, that's what the free market did. There are people who are scientists and they developed this. They made a whole lot of money developing, these, developing the breathalyzers and other tests, and that's going to come with the THC. I have a question for you that's really not related to this that much about uh, about THC, though, Adam, since you are an attorney, you do defend people uh, re- regarding cannabis and such. Um, and, and I have this, this is the question. I'm hearing more and more stories about, especially healthcare workers, they will get a, a medical marijuana card. I know this is really off topic, but it's still cannabis related. They'll get a medical marijuana card. They're using it legally. And then they get a drug test at work and they're told, oh, you're going to be fired now uh, because you tested for cannabis and they say well i have a medical marijuana card and they say well we don't care we're going to fire you they hire a lawyer they go to court they get six months of their salary they settle out of court no fault no nothing and that's and i'm hearing more and more cases like this is that accurate and and if so why it it is and i 
think a lot of employers don't understand the Delaware Medical Marijuana Act and the protections that are offered under that act for employees who are registered cardholders. There's limited circumstances under which an employer can take action against a, a medical patient, and they're outlined in the act. Um, I've had dozens of referrals come in through my office of, you know, not just nurses, but people who, who applied for jobs with other employers and were rejected. And I refer those cases to a colleague of mine who does employment work, and I know he's had great success. I've had people contact me who talk to me first, um, who then got settlements uh, from different employers, from a variety of different employers. And I think that employers are starting to recognize when they're paying out these suits and paying fifteen, twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars to these people who are rejected employment, that the they're starting to adjust their policies. I just think they didn't they didn't know or they knew and thought they could get away with it. You know, we were talking about uh, this other point about the most common myths that you'll be addressing tonight on this virtual cannabis legalization forum, Myths versus Facts, tonight, 7 o'clock to 8.30. Uh, we'll give you the online address in just a second. It's going to be through Facebook. Um, and, and I think it comes down to being able to measure kind of like alcohol by volume in a blood test. THC and the efficacy there, how much it might be affecting somebody if it's indeed found, say, in a blood test. I mean, THC, active ingredient in cannabis, can be in someone's bloodstream for weeks and weeks and weeks, even up to a month. But still, uh, after a couple of days of use, or after even after a couple of hours or a few hours of using it, there's really no effect on their cognitive uh, abilities. So, how is that going to play into this then, Adam? The, the way that's going to work is when a test is done to test for cannabis consumption, when employers do this pre-employment test, that's going to pick up both active and inactive metabolites. It's just a test for past consumption, and it's going to go back weeks, if not months. When a test is conducted for DUIs or, or, or a more detailed test, that test can distinguish between the active metabolites and the inactive metabolites of cannabis. And the active metabolites, depending on how frequently a person consumes, only remain in the blood uh, for about a day at, at, on the higher ends. The inactive metabolites, the things that are showing up in these employment tests six weeks later, that's the inactive metabolites. So the way to distinguish between the two is whether it's active or inactive. But even when that's done, the level of THC in nanograms per milliliter in a person's blood, there's not any conclusive studies on what level is impairment. It's not like alcohol, and, and really with alcohol in the 0.08, a 0.08 BAC is not proof of impairment. It's just a per se limit that's been placed by the law. Good point. So yeah, but I mean, there are no, people who have... Uh, there are people, Adam, who've gotten uh, DUIs and they blew a, a .01. Forgive me for interrupting at this point because uh, we only have about uh, three minutes left here. So we know through scientific study, cannabis is not a gateway drug to hard drugs. We know that uh, Delaware law enforcement officers do have a test to determine if, determine if someone's driving impaired. Um, we've talked about this. I want to get back to Zoe on one, that legalization causes an increase in underage illegal use. Now, I've looked at the numbers from Colorado and other other states, and well, go, Zoe, go ahead, share the information. 
Yes, so there's actually a lot of information on that. Uh, research from states that have legalized, as well as C the CDC, Johns Hopkins, National Institute, Institute of Drug Abuse, the American Association of Pediatrics, increase in teen use post-legalization. Um, and HB 150 actually employs robust regulations uh, to prevent the sale and the use of non-medical underage um, consumption of cannabis. Um, HB 150 uh, sets the age of introduction at 21. Um, it explicitly prohibits individuals under the age of 21 from purchasing, possessing, or even entering or being in a cannabis establishment. It requires establishments to prevent the sale and diversion of cannabis to those under the age of 21. It requires cannabis to be sold in opa opaque child-resistant packaging. Um, that's, that's, even, uh, that's even more strict than a bottle of alcohol. By the way, Zoe, when you were saying this, um, <laughs> your phone cut out right when you said the words did not. In other words, uh, the legalization of cannabis, and then, you said, and then we couldn't hear you say did not increase the use of uh, cannabis amongst oh. uh, minors. Yeah, it sounded it sound like it did. You know what I mean? I just want to say that. So also, no statistical increase. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, I understand. Look, I looked at the numbers from the Department of Health uh, in these uh, northwestern states where they have legalized it, and there is no increase uh, in youth usage as well. Uh, for both of you, um, you know, I've talked about the fact that in California, because they raised the taxes so high, it continues a black market there. How do you address that? I think Delaware has already addressed that. And, and one of the ways that HB 150 does that is unlike other states, there's no excise tax on cannabis that's, that's cultivated. The sales tax is also much lower than other states. It's 15%. So the total tax on cannabis in Delaware is going to be the lowest in the country when, when it passes. And at the prices that legal states' competitive markets are producing cannabis, I can tell you as a, as a consumer and someone with knowledge of this, the prices are much, much lower um, in legal states. And even with a 15% tax, they're going to be far lower for a better product than what we currently have in the illicit market in Delaware. Okay, gotcha. Now, um, you will answer the question about does legislation create big marijuana tonight? Because we don't have time right now. we got about 20 seconds here. So tonight, 7 o'clock, where do the people sign on for this virtual forum? So you can go to DelawareCanvasPolicy.org backslash NIST um, or just go straight to our Facebook page at DelawareCanOrg. Um, which is on the Delaware Cannabis, uh, Delaware Cannabis Advocacy Network Facebook page. All right. Uh, Adam, Zoe, thank you so much for your time, and I wish you great success tonight, and I wish you great success with this legislation as well. All right? Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you again, thank you, Rick. Rick. Thanks for having us on. Oh, absolutely. And we'll podcast it. Hang on. More with Rick Jensen is just ahead on 1150 AM, 1017 FM, WDEL.